Well, good evening to you. Thanks for coming to join with us. Um, as has already been mentioned, we are in the midst of a series where we are trying to work our way through giving an overview to the main storyline of the Bible. Something that we sometimes find difficult to do is to condense into a nutshell. If someone was to ask you, what is the Bible about? We would, many of us, struggle to give a brief answer to that question. Or maybe we wouldn't be sure what the answer would be. Now, we've come to week number four in this series. And the the problem with the successive weeks is that to give a quick recap on what we've covered in the previous weeks becomes a bigger and bigger job. Um, And so this is the first week where I'm not going to give you the full recap of where we've come from, from week one. Suffice to say, we started in Genesis, and last week we finished in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So you get an idea of how much we've covered. In order to try and get a grasp of this big, grand storyline of the Bible, we're we're using a a prominent theme in the Word of God, just to, to kind of really try and focus our thoughts. And it's that theme of the kingdom of God. And you'll have seen that theme again and again in the songs we've been singing tonight. And we have been using a definition that we've borrowed from someone else, which Samuel's going to put up. Um, It's this definition of God's kingdom, that it is God's people in God's place under God's rule and blessing. So last week, we saw that God had established his people, the Jewish people, in the promised land. He had set over them a godly king in King David. And that was where we left off, 2 Samuel 7. And it's one of, that was one of the real high points of King David's life, where God made a covenant with him. A covenant that God was going to establish a dynasty from King David. That there would be one who would reign on the throne of David forevermore. He's described, this this king is described as he will be a son of God. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. And we saw last week that this meant that this king who was promised would be one who would be like God, who would reign like God, who would reign in righteousness, who would reign in justice. And I mentioned just as we closed off last week that the rest of the Bible really is all about looking for that king. Where is he going to come from? When is he going to come? When is this rule of God going to appear on earth? And it's really from there that I want to pick up again tonight. I think it's worth mentioning, um, even though this isn't really the the style of, of, of the approach we have in this series, but it's worth mentioning that one of the places where we find great expression of this looking for the king that God has promised, is in the book of Psalms. Uh, Not all of the Psalms were written by King David, but he is the name that is most, most often associated with the book of Psalms. He seems to be the author who makes the biggest contribution. And the book of Psalms is a beautiful, timeless book 
And in some ways, that's why it's difficult to fit into a series where we're looking at the the big storyline of the Bible, because a book like the book of Psalms, well, it doesn't just fit neatly in one space. It is something that is timeless, because it's in the book of Psalms that the whole range of experiences of life are covered. Some of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. Some of the Psalms are hymns of praise. Some of the Psalms are prayers of petition. And on this theme that we're on, some of the Psalms are looking for the king. You could read, for example, Psalm 2. Or maybe even more um, explicitly, Psalm 24, where this question is asked more than once, Who is this king of glory? And the answer comes back, The Lord Almighty is the king of glory. Or also Psalm 110 and many others beside, looking forward, anticipating the king that God has promised. And I want to just pause for a moment and really recommend to you reading the Psalms. If I was to say, if there's one book that will, that will warm your heart devotionally, um, and, and who, who dares to stick their neck out and say, here's a book of the Bible I would choose over another. But you would struggle to do better than the Psalms. Because it is this very realistic, very human, and sometimes very raw language that's used. Very honest Psalms and prayers and songs that go up to God. It's this that has made them so precious to believers throughout the generations. If you feel as if God is distant today, or if you're here and you feel like rejoicing before God, if you're here today and you feel as if the future is uncertain, if you're here today and you know that you've let God down, you're here today and maybe you're angry with God, if you need reminded of all that God has done for you, well, whatever position and place you are in today, Read the Psalms. They will speak to your soul. They will sing to your soul. They are the gathered hymns for those, from those who have followed God and have walked that same road ahead of you. Anyway, that's an aside. King David received these great and glorious promises from the Lord. And when we see how David's son... Solomon commences his reign, it seems as if maybe this is the man. Maybe this is the man who will fulfill all of the promise. If there is one thing that's presented to us as characterizing Solomon's early years as king of Israel, it's wisdom. That's the one word that would sum it up, wisdom. In fact, when Solomon comes to the throne, God makes Solomon a tantalizing offer. He says, and you would find this in Second Chronicles chapter 1, he says, Ask for whatever you want me to give you. What would you ask for? Given that opportunity by God. Here's Solomon's reply. Give me wisdom and knowledge. For who is able to govern this great people of yours? This, was, this is what he sought from God, and God was very pleased with this answer. 
And God said that, well, since you've, you've asked for this thing, rather than asking for wealth and riches and palaces and, and military victories, because you've asked for this thing, I'll give it to you and I'll give you all the rest as well. What a start to this man's reign. And what great things Solomon accomplishes. And to show you his accomplishments, um, I want to show you that they fit in with this theme that we're looking at, God's kingdom. Um, so if you have a Bible with you, turn with me to First Kings chapter 4. First Kings chapter 4, and here um, the person who records this for us is moved by the Holy Spirit to communicate to us how the Lord God was fulfilling his promises through the reign of Solomon. So look with me at uh, verse 20. Um, and uh, Samuel's going to bring this up on the screen. Uh, verse 20, it tells us something about God's people. The people of Judah and Israel were as numerous as the sand on the seashore. Now, we've encountered this sort of language already in the Old Testament. It's taking us back to the book of Genesis, to the promise in the covenant made to Abraham. And you would find it in Genesis 22 17. I will bless you. I will make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand on the seashore. But we, let's stick in 1 Kings 4, verse 21, which is also on the screen here. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the river to the land of the Philistines as far as the border of Egypt. This also takes us back to the covenant with Abraham. In, uh, you see there's a couple of references mentioned there in Genesis 15. There is the promise that uh, to, you, to your descendants I give this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates. And you find it more specifically in Exodus 23, this, this identical promise of this place being given. And here we come, 1 Kings 4, God's people they're as numerous as the sand on the seashore. The land that God was to give them, here it is, it is given. Solomon acquires it. And what about the manner in which God's people dwelt in God's place? Well, if you were to read on in 1 Kings 4, verses 22 and 23, there's lots of specific details about the sort of provision that people had in the land. It was abundant. And in fact, that's the point that's made in verse 25, which will also come up on the screen. During Solomon's lifetime, Judah and Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, that is from the north to the south, they lived in safety, each man under his own vine and fig tree. And there is yet even more. God's people were not only in God's place and did not only know the security and blessing of God, they had God's presence. And arguably, Solomon's greatest accomplishment was the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. This was the task that his father David had longed to do, but, but God had, not, had different plans. And it was Solomon who would build this temple. And it took him seven years to do it. And there is described in the scriptures this great, significant moment when the Ark of the Covenant, symbolizing the very presence of God, is taken into the temple. Never before has God had this fixed dwelling place. But here now, God is going to dwell in the capital of his nation. 
We find this in in 1 Kings 8. Listen to this from verse 10. When the priests withdrew from the holy place, the cloud filled the temple of the Lord. And the priests could not perform their service because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled his temple. So you see, with all of these pieces that add together, what a sense of optimism there is amongst God's people. The seemingly great new dawn in Israel is confirmed by the words that Solomon would go on to pray. And we don't have time to to really go into it. 1 Kings 8, you have Solomon offering a prayer of dedication to the Lord, dedicating the temple. And if you were to just even scan down that prayer, you find Solomon praying that God would hear their prayers, that God would forgive their sins, that God would draw the foreigner near, that God would give them victory in battle as they seek him in this place of worship. Solomon is asking that the temple would be a spur to God's people, to keep them faithful, to keep them seeking the Lord for everything. But you must be getting used to this sort of pattern by now. Just when we think there's grounds for enormous optimism for the future of God's people, then it all starts to deteriorate. For all of Solomon's wisdom, what very quickly comes to the fore after this is his inadequacy. This is not a new dawn for Israel. This is actually as good as it gets. This is their national high point. They never reach these dizzy heights again. It's all downhill from here. Solomon, he shows his failings in several ways. One of the roots of his downfall was his complicated family life. And that's a very diplomatic way to describe someone who thought it wise to have 700 wives and 300 concubines. The mind boggles. Not only did he have this vast number of wives and concubines, but they were from the surrounding nations. They were foreigners. And so they brought with them their own religion. And you would find this in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 4. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been down to verse 7 on a hill east of Jerusalem Solomon built a high place for Chemosh the detestable God of Moab and for Molech the detestable God of the Ammonites he did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense And offered sacrifices to their gods. And you would read on down that God is most upset with this. These choices that Solomon has made. So much so that he says he's going to tear the kingdom away from Solomon. That's in verse 11. And verse 12. Nevertheless, for the sake of David your father, I will not do it during your lifetime. We were filled with such optimism a moment ago. And then all we're left with is the certainty that God is going to tear this kingdom from Solomon and from his offspring. And sure enough, after Solomon dies and his son Rehoboam takes over, 
the kingdom starts to collapse. Now, I know for many of us, it's at this point in the history books in, in the Old Testament that we start to find it all a bit confusing. And I really just want to, to present as simply as I can what it is that takes place. And we're only going to get a very broad brush on this, but hopefully it helps to clarify um, sometimes what seems like very repetitious writing. And it mentions Israel, it mentions Judah, and they seem to dance back and forth. And we can very easily get confused about what happens. Here's how it goes. The first thing that the new king has to deal with, King Rehoboam, is the working conditions of the people who live in the northern part of the country. Solomon, in another mistake, had conscripted these men to work on his building projects. It was really a form of forced labor that he had set about here. So they come to the new king and they plead with him. Lighten the harsh labor on us. It's too much for us. Instead of agreeing to their request, the new king vows to make the yoke even heavier. He's going to rule with an iron fist, or so he thinks. This incenses the northern peoples so that they have Indiref won, but they vote to leave. And the northern kingdom sets itself up as its own nation. They separate from King Rehoboam and set themselves up as a new nation. Ten tribes, ten of the twelve tribes, they separate off and they pronounce themselves the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. And left in the south is Rehoboam, looking after the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And usually that's referred to just as Judah. It's the southern kingdom that would retain Jerusalem as its capital. They would have the temple, the dwelling place of God. And so you can understand in the north, they have a bit of a dilemma. How are we going to maintain our worship of God if we no longer have easy access to God's dwelling place in Jerusalem. Well, the first king of the north, a man by the name of Jeroboam, he comes up with an ingenious solution. He would make in his land two new centers of worship. And in order to mark these places of worship, he had two golden calves made. One was to be placed in Dan in the extreme north, And the other was to be placed in Bethel in the south. In fact, listen to these words of of what Jeroboam says to his people when he presents them with this solution. He says, it is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Here are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. This is exactly the same words that Aaron used way back at the foot of Mount Sinai, when he presented the golden calf as the object of worship for the people. What takes place here, and this is just at the start of this new nation, is is utter rebellion against God. It is flagrant idolatry in the face of God, repeating seemingly on purpose the mistakes of the past. Well, the story of the northern kingdom is one of progressive decline. Perhaps worth mentioning is one king by the name of Ahab. Ahab is a man who 
who really defines a nation that is far from God. He marries a a foreign princess by the name of Jezebel. She worships the god Baal. And so it wasn't long before Ahab worshipped Baal. It wasn't long before he set up altars to worship this pagan god. And in fact, this is how it's described in 1 Kings 16. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all the kings of Israel before him. Ahab and Jezebel were a wicked pair. But their standing before them as the Lord's brave messenger was the prophet Elijah. And he came with a reasonably simple challenge, not just to the king, but to the people. It is a challenge that must ring true in our ears as well. His challenge was this. Who is the true God? Who is the true God? You need to make a decision. Who is it? If it is Baal, then worship him. If it is Yahweh the Lord, then serve him. Yet despite God showing his unmistakable might, the hearts of the people, and especially the heart of the king, is unmoved. The the sorry tale of the northern kingdom of Israel comes to an end about 200 years after they had declared independence. The last king of the north was just another wicked king. During his reign, the Assyrian Empire attacked Israel, laid siege to it for three years until it was eventually captured. The Jews were deported and the Assyrians repopulated the land with foreigners so that ultimately that the Jewish identity of those who had remained was lost as they intermarried. And they came to be so despised. This was the birth of the Samaritans, so despised by the Jews. But something I want to point out is the reason why this happened. This is much, much more than someone just being a bad king. Listen to these words from Second Kings chapter 17. This is verse 7. All this took place because the Israelites had sinned against the Lord their God, who had brought them up out of Egypt from under the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. They worshipped other gods and followed the practices of the nations the Lord had driven out before them. And then throughout that passage, there's the charges are, are, are labeled or are thrown against Israel. Things like they would not listen They forsook all the commands of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord rejected all the people of Israel. And within 150 years of this, the southern kingdom had gone the same way. Despite having some very positive kings in their history. Kings like um, Hezekiah, kings like Josiah. Men who actually even saw revival in their lands. The big picture of the story of Judah is also one of idolatry. And so the Babylonians came knocking at the door. They conquered the land of Judah. They started to deport the important and promising people to the land of Babylon. 
There would be a couple of other times where Babylon would come back and they would deport some more. And at the third time of knocking, they destroyed the city of Jerusalem. And most symbolically and significantly, they destroyed Solomon's great temple. God's people had rejected him. And we should not miss God's hand in the response. Let me encourage you to turn to the book of Second Chronicles, the very last chapter of Second Chronicles, chapter 36. Um, Samuel's going to bring this up for us. This is from verse 15. The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again, because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people, and there was no remedy. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians. It was God who, after patient display, after patient display of compassion and care, he finally has to give them up. And it's the Lord who raises up this foreign king of Babylon to come and to destroy the city. To come and to carry them out of the promised land. And they would be taken out of there for 70 years. There is a significance in the duration of what is called the exile. They're taken away, they're out of the land for 70 years. The significance of the 70 years is not just that one of the prophets uh, prophesied that after 70 years they would come back. You'd find that in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 25 and chapter 29. But because of the unfaithfulness and the type of unfaithfulness that Judah had shown in the preceding years. In the law, there were instructions about how the people were to treat the land. Here was one of them. Every seventh year was to be a Sabbath year. So just like every seventh day, there was to be no work. Every seventh year, the land was to be left to lie fallow. And whatever sprouted up naturally would be what the, the people had for food. God's people didn't observe this practice. The concerns about being productive were apparently much more pressing than being obedient and trusting that the Lord would still provide. And this is the reason, um, or one of the reasons which is given also in Second Chronicles 36. Um, this is what's said in verse 21. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah. They had neglected 70 Sabbath years, and so the land would be left to lie and rest for those 70 years. But do you see there's hope here? There's hope. Again, there is hope. It's for a limited time. They would come back. And that's what the books of Ezra and Nehemiah record for us. 
Humanly speaking, the big turning point seems to be the overthrow of the Babylonian Empire. The Persian Empire now dominates. The Persian king, a man by the name of Cyrus, he had a policy of repatriating foreign nations. And it was a good way of keeping them on board, minimizing the chance of unrest. And he looks to do the same for the Jewish nation. However, you come to the book of Ezra, which records this return to Jerusalem. And you find that this is not the perspective we should have. There is something bigger at work. The opening verse of the book of Ezra says this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. This is what lies behind the return of God's people. The king is stirred to issue a decree that any of the Jews who want to go back and rebuild the city are free to do so. And so much so, they'll get a a royal grant to assist with the work. It's the Lord who's at work here. He stirs up not only the king, but he stirs up the hearts of the people to return and to go back under the leadership of a man named Zerubbabel. And when they get there, the great priority is what? Let's rebuild the temple. Let's rebuild the temple, the place that was so important to us, that spoke so powerfully of God's presence. But we see that this is not going to be a return to the glory days. In chapter 3 of Ezra, we find that the, the foundations of the temple are laid. And there's much excitement at the progress that is going on. But listen to the response. When the people seem to to move in and have a closer look at what's being built, you find this in verse um, 11. And this is going to come up on the screen for us. There we are. All the people gave a great shout of praise to the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the older priests and Levites and family heads who had seen the former temple, wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. The rights and the wrongs of who should be weeping and rejoicing is another story, but what definitely comes out of this is that this is going to be no return to the glory days. Those who had seen the former temple, they looked on at the foundations of the new one and they wept. It seemed to them pitiful by comparison. They do complete the temple. We then read in the book of Nehemiah of those who would return to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And it's pretty much there that the Old Testament stops with the storyline of the children of Israel. The kingdom that had seemed filled with so much promise when it hit the giddy heights of David and Solomon's reign, it would never reach those heights again. And what we are left to conclude as we look on in in Ezra and Nehemiah's day, that even though there is a rebuilding and it is something much smaller, they're still actually an occupied people. 
we have to conclude that God's ultimate plan to build his kingdom must be bigger and it must be grander than just setting a group of people in comfort and security and giving them a law to abide by. Because this is what we've seen with the nation of Israel. God has given them every possible chance, every possible advantage. And what keeps on happening is it collapses. And why? What is the weak link in all of this building of a kingdom? It is human beings. They are the weak link here. It's as if we are to read these books of the Old Testament and see that it does not matter into what sort of position human beings are placed. They can never be right in their own strength with their God. Place them in the Garden of Eden. Give them the laws at Mount Sinai. Give them judges and kings to rule over them. Give them security from enemies all around. And what is the result? It is man's failing. This great plan that God has to build his kingdom needs to be much bigger. It must be much bigger. It must deal with the roots of the problem of humanity. What we see in these, um, this history of Israel is a shadow of Christ's kingdom. Something far greater is to come. Something that will deal with the heart of the issue. As I close, I want to close by reading a parable of the Lord Jesus. Uh, one that he told that sums up something of this history of Israel with God. You'd find it in Luke chapter 20. What we're supposed to draw uh, from also as we, as we look on these episodes in the life of God's people is we are in no way supposed to stand back from them and say, well, how could they? Or, or, or to even consider that, well, maybe these primitive people, how could they be so deceived? We are to see that this is human nature that is on display, the nature that we share, and the needs that these people had are the needs that we have. The failings that they had are the failings we have. And the remedy that's required, well, it's the same remedy we require. Luke chapter 20, verse 9. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him. And sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him and the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. The story of God's dealings with Israel 
is a story of the wickedness of humanity, but it is also a story of the patient and long-suffering love on the part of God. God who does not give up on humanity. God who does not give up on his promise to build his kingdom. Next week we're going to turn to look at the prophets of the Old Testament and to consider what they were looking to, to consider what they had in view, to consider what their message was, as they will give us a clearer glimpse of what God's kingdom must really be, something bigger and better than even the kingdom under Solomon. Join with me in praying, and then we'll sing our closing hymn. Father, we want to thank you for the word of God. We recognize that we've covered so much ground in these last four weeks and even tonight, Lord, and we pray that you would help each of us to, to have the desire to, to read deeper into all of these things, to, Lord, recognize uh, that you were at work amongst your people and all of the ways that you were Uh, You are teaching us about what your kingdom is like, about what you are like, about what we are like. But we thank you that we read these words and we, we do so through the cross of Christ. And what a joy for us to be able to say that one greater than Solomon has come. And he has given himself for us. Father, we, we confess we are We are sinful human beings, Lord, that we are unable to earn any favor with you, that we, given even the best of advantages in life, we still fall short. We recognize, Lord, that it is our heart that needs to be transformed. And we ask you, Lord, to keep on changing us, to make us more like Christ, the one who is the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one whose kingdom shall know no end. Lord, may we be pleasing to you. May we be honoring to him as we go into this new week. In Jesus' name, amen.